The rest of you can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. We are gathered together and kind of anticipating kind of Passion Week together, the Passion of Christ as, she, as He goes to the cross. And it starts this week out with, in a sense, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And in Luke 19 gives us a, a version of this, a synopsis. The other Gospels give us different details, more details. Um, and in the triumphal entry, we, in a sense, it's kicking off this claim that Christ has to be the coming Messiah, in a sense, not, no longer coming, the one who has arrived, coming in the name of the Lord. And this claim is the key to all of who Jesus is, all of who Jesus, uh, what Jesus wants to accomplish in the world and in us. And at the same time, it's, uh, it's, it's something that we all struggle with in some ways, this, this claim that Christ comes, in a sense. And I've titled the, the, the message this morning, The God of Love and Fury Comes as a Prince. The God of Love and Fury Comes as a Prince. Because... Uh, he's coming and he's, he's making a claim in his coming. And the, and the question really comes down to, do you accept the claim or not? Do you believe it or not? And so I want to look this morning at this big idea that we should worship our prince. Not that we should see our prince as someone who's going to come and take care of our problems. Not just someone who's going to come and be uh, someone who's going to solve the political issues of the day. But someone that we should worship. So follow along as I read in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, where it says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie him and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This story is part of, in a sense, the entire Bible, the story of the entire Bible. And this, this story means that we are getting to know who God is, we're getting to know his, his claims on us, what he's done for us. And the, the claims that were being made here were, uh, this was written to Jews, but especially Luke is written to, to the Romans, in a sense, to say, hey, notice who this God is. And the Romans didn't quite understand it. They didn't quite get it. They, in a sense, they mocked it. In fact, in, in 200 AD, there was this, uh, this uh, kind of plaster square found, and, and you could trace the graffiti that was on it, even back in Back in the day, they graffitied things. They just didn't do it with paint. They did it with soft concrete, which 
actually lasts a lot longer than paint, right? Uh, and so this lasted, and it's a, a drawing here of a guy with his arm raised uh, uh, in, in kind of you know, in a fealty position, kind of saying, I'm worshiping or acknowledging. And then you have kind of the body of a man with the head of a donkey on a cross. And below it's sketched, Alexamenos worships God. Alexamenos chibete theon is in Greek. And, and, and the point here is it's, it's, it's mocking, right? It, it's, they're, they're saying, who, who, yeah, yeah, we go to the temple and we worship the gods, but Alexamenos, he, he just kind of looks up to this crucified guy and, and, uh, and he, he worships him as God. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's worthy of mockery, right? Because in the Roman Empire, you didn't, in polite society, you did not talk about crucifixions. Crucifixions were this, this symbol of ultimate Roman power. Like, hey, if you don't like us, we don't care. If you break the law, we crucify you. We don't just kill you, but we put you up for public spectacle to kill you in such a way that everybody sees that we're in control and you're not. It was the way Romans kept control of their empire. And you didn't talk about it. You observed it, but you didn't, you didn't talk about it. You stayed away as far from it as possible because Roman power was not worth messing with. It was the ultimate example of shame, disgrace, degradation, humiliation. Crucifixions were grotesque. And yet here... You have Christians saying their God was crucified on a cross. And it doesn't make sense to the Romans. It doesn't. And that's why you have the head of a donkey up here, which is, I think, a reference even to this story here. Like, yeah, what, what God would ride a donkey? <laughs> you know what I mean? What God would ride a donkey? You'd ride a horse. You'd ride a powerful horse, a great horse. You, if Even better, ride a chariot. Have the horses pulling you because you're so great. But to sit on a colt of a donkey and ride into town and then get crucified a couple of days later, what God is worthy of worship? In fact, you could almost hear the comment, right? Alexamenos, when he worships his God, he doesn't worship in awe. He worships in hee-haw, Right? Right? That, that sense of just mockery that's present here to the Romans. And yet, this is the claim. It's the claim Jesus made. It's the claim Luke, in writing this book, is making. So let's just investigate this claim together. First of all, by just knowing who God is. Knowing who God is. Let's, let's review here the story, if you will. God is not just the God of Jesus showing up in Jerusalem in AD 30, and making a claim, this is the God of the entire Old Testament, the God who rescued the, the Israelites from, 
from, from Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And in the midst of that, they sinned against him. And so he reveals himself to Moses by hiding Moses in the cleft of the rock, right? And he says this as he passes by, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here we have this tension that is present in revealing who God is in the Old Testament, this God of both love and fury. Because he says, I'm going to show steadfast love to thousands, I'm going to forgive their sins, and at the same time he says, I'm going to by no means clear the guilty. Like, there's, it's very emphatic in the Hebrew. There is no, absolutely no way, if you're guilty, you're going to get off. And so you have in the Old Testament God, examples of God's judgment over sin, and you have examples of God's forgiveness over sin, but you're left wondering, how is it possible? Is this just a schizophrenic God that one day says, okay, I'm going to be forgiving, and the next day is like, I know I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, going to punish the guilty? How, how does it work? Even in the New Testament, you have the, these two things in the same chapter in John 3.16, famous verse, right? Everybody knows John 3.16. Even if you're not a Christian, you know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's a great example of the love of God forgiving us. And a few verses later, what does it say? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's love and God's fury. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. And here we have in the person, the claim is in the person of Jesus, we have God's love and God's fury united. How is that possible? Well, I think there's a couple things to remember. The, the, first of all, the, the wrath of God expresses love as well. The, the, these two things can coexist. The wrath of God expresses love. We live in a world that's, that's, if you will, teaches kind of moral relativity. Like if it works, it's good. If it doesn't work, it's bad. If it hurts someone, it's good. If it doesn't hurt someone, it's bad. And, and it's all relative, just based on the situation or based on... And if you don't have these absolutes, if you don't have these, these things that are stark realities to life, all of a sudden it makes, it makes it very easy to feel like, well, I'm just kind of negotiating my way through life, doing whatever works for me, or at least what doesn't get me into trouble, and it doesn't create any, any sense of, here I stand, I can do nothing else. But the wrath of God is an expression of love because it's saying, this is who he is. He doesn't want to be anything else. C.S. Lewis kind of put this in perspective. And it says, in a, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we, that is, in the current age in which we live, we remove the organ and demand the function. So he's kind of making the analogy of to our bodies. We remove the organ and demand the function. He says, we make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. You can't have courage to stand and say, this is where I can stand, I can do no other, without the wrath and the love of God both united. 
He says, we laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and build the geldings be fruitful. His point is, is that if you, if you can't put both together and live with both, you can't live. But where does the, just start with this, thing, where does the love of God come from? Ever think about that? Did it, did it just come from nature? Like we look at nature and we just see the love of God everywhere. Well, Charles Darwin looked at nature and what did he see? The survival of the fittest, right? Like there's death everywhere. There's power everywhere. And the, the people that are the most powerful, the animals that are most powerful, they win. Death is everywhere. The love of God is not evident if you look into nature. How about other religions? Where, where do we find the love of God really expressed? Well, you, you see love, but not love of grace. It's love based on law. It's based on if you keep the rules, then you're okay. How about in history? Have we found some kind of society that just believed that God loved them? And when you look back through history, what you see is societies that believe that God was a God of control primarily. God of control, not of love. In fact, just consider the problem of slavery. We believe that slavery is wrong, it's evil, it's wicked, it's destructive, not just to humans' lives, but even to saying who they are. But historically, slavery was not considered an evil. It was considered normal. You, you captured a, 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 comp, a country, you took its people slaves, and they were your slaves, that was it. And when you look at this, you can say, well, okay, but historians ask this question. It says, considering the fact that it was universally believed by all societies that we had the right to attack and enslave weaker people, and since everybody had always done it, the real historical question is, why did it occur to anybody that it was wrong? Whoever first had the idea that slavery was wrong? And what you see in history is that Christians in the 4th, the 15th, the 16th, the 17th, the 18th centuries. They were the ones that were first saying, this is wrong. Why? Why could they say it? Because they saw the love and the wrath of God united. And they saw, but they saw the love of God. But the love of God also, if you have the love of God, it also does express wrath. Hosea, a book written by a prophet to the nation of Israel who had left their God. This verse is express, this is the love of God. It says, how can, Hosea 11, 8 says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? So do I have that? Yeah. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma, that is, uh, when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? How can I make you like Zeboiim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. He's saying, I'm both angry at what you're doing, but it's, it's out of my love that I want this to happen. And in fact, we see this even in this chapter. If you go down to a few verses from what we just read, and he says, when he drew near to the city and saw the city, Jesus wept over it, saying, Would that even you, you even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the love of God expressing anger. It's like, you look... 
You're going about it the wrong way. You're, you're headed for destruction. And that love says, stop, don't do this. We, we know this ourselves, right? We look at friends who are doing destructive things, whether to themselves or to other people, and we're like, don't, stop, this is bad, this is wrong. It's, it's going to hurt you to do what you keep on doing. So the love of God expresses wrath. There is wrath and anger, and they can be united as one why? When you have a God who can bring both to bear on a situation. And this is the God that is presented to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The King, the God of wrath and fury, comes as a prince. He's coming. And at the same time, as he's coming, and we know who he is, we also need to know ourselves. We need to know ourselves. If you want to know how to respond in the situation, you not only need to know God, you need to know yourself. Who are you? Ever thought about that? Who am I? Who am I really? You know, not the facade that you put up, you know, like, hey, I'm, I've got, I got my classes together, I got, I, got, uh, I got a goal in life, I got all these things, but who who are you really? Like, what's going on on the inside? Sometimes we think of ourselves as just animals. Right? We just, we just live according to our desires. We just do what, what we're made to do. And we just, that's what we have to do, right? And yet, at the same time, we know we're different. Wendell Berry, in his poem, The Peace of Wild Things, makes this kind of abundantly clear in, both, in a kind of a poignant way. He says this, When despair for the world grows in me, do I have this up here? Nope, I don't, okay. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For, I t- for a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and I'm free. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, sometimes I just go out in nature and I realize nobody else cares what's going to happen in the future. The stars don't care. They're just shining. They don't even realize that there's day and night in the world. They just shine. He says, you look at the animals. They just live. They're not worried about the future. And for a moment, I just kind of accept that for myself. And yet, at the same time, he's not that. Ecclesiastes says that he, God has put eternity in our hearts. We, we think about the future. And the problem is that when we think about the future, we get worried. We get anxious. He uses this term, right? He says, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. It's a great phrase. Wendell must be a good poet. <laughs> the, the forethought of grief. We, we look at our lives and we're worried about the future, right? We're worried not about the fact that we, everything's going to go right. We're worried about the fact that everything's going to go wrong. <laughs> and we're going to be sad and unhappy and miserable. And we tax our lives with the forethought of that. In a sense... It's to step away. And it's just this, this conundrum we have 
that the Bible captures extremely well. We are creatures. God made us. And at the same time, we are creatures made in the image of God. That is, God makes us somewhat like himself in order that we can reflect who he is. And part of that is planning for the future, thinking about the future, thinking about the things that we care for and the things that we want to live for. And, and we have this as part of who we are. The problem is, is that we don't keep this in balance. And we shift from just keeping it in balance. And we, we don't either go all the way to creatures. I can't control myself. I'm just going to live day to day. Who cares how I live? I just got to do that. Or we b- go all the way to, <laughs> I want to be God. I don't want to f- tax my life with a forethought of grief. I want to control everything so I can get back t- to being God. If I can be God, then I can control what happens, right? And this is present even in this story here because as Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives, the Pharisees are the first ones to greet him. And they're like, hey, Can you shut these disciples up? (laughs) This isn't really appropriate. This is not good. They're making a public scene. And they're saying things that aren't appropriate. They're talking about you as if you're God. You're you're the one who's going to solve all the problems. And there are Pharisees in our our own world as well. Just that idea of Pharisees were all about, let's return back to the values that kept us safe, right? The values that keep our country going. And the Pharisees were all about this idea that that if we could just return to to everybody obeying the rules and and valuing what's truly valuable, then our our society, our country would be good. In, In modern day life, Ben Shapiro is a great example of this. He's got a lot of great things to say, but he is a Jew who's also, in that sense, a Pharisee. He wants to return to the values of life. And it's not wrong, but what, he wants, what Pharisees wanted to do with the entire country, so to speak, is just, in a sense, conquer everybody by saying, let's return to our values. Let's just go back. Let's go back to what we have or what we had. We're going to conquer everyone by just making the past better than the future and going back to it. On the other side, you had the Sadducees, and if you read through this next week in Jesus' life, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are both at Jesus' throat, so to speak, trying to get him to make one false move. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were sad, you see, right? That's just a way of remembering it. But they were the power players. They, they had the power in the society, and they were all about keeping life comfortable. They were the politicians of, the, of our world but not just the politicians, the people who are in power, who want to keep power and play word games in order to keep everything comfortable for them. The Sadducees also are, are here and they come to Jesus and they try to trick Jesus and they try to get Jesus, out, you know, demonstrate that he's not God. And then there's the crowd who one day is praising him saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and a few days later is saying, crucify him. And they're all about just, well, I'm just living my life. Whatever seems good at the moment, I'm going to respond to. So you have kind of three different groups here. The group that's like, hey, let's just return to our values. Let's conquer everybody by, with values. You got one group that's just like, let's just conquer everybody so we can be comfortable. Who cares about anyone else? And you have the group that's just like, well, just, let's, just, let's just find out what's good in the moment. Who cares? Let's not try to plan this too far ahead. And I want to ask you the question, which one are you? We all tend to be one of these three. 
We all tend to be like, hey, if everyone would just follow the rules, then my life and everybody's life would be better, right? Some of us are more like, hey, if, if you just do what I say, <laughs> then I'll be comfortable at least. Who cares about you, <laughs> right? And some of us are just like, well, I don't know. I'll just float day to day, you know? Like, why should I have to plan something? Why should I have to pick a side? What does it matter? We've all been one of those three. And that's why Jesus comes. That's why Jesus comes. And that's why we need to rejoice in our prince. What do we need? We need him to be seen and acknowledged and believed in as the king. This is not something new. In Psalm 2, in the Old Testament again, the psalmist is saying this. He says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their bonds from us. We want to be God, right? I want to be God in order to make sure everybody does follow the rules. I want to be God just so that I can be comfortable. I want to be God and just not worry about how to pick sides, just go with the moment. We all want to be God in our own way. We're no different than this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them in with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here again we see the God of love and fury, right? All right. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. But at the same time, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that one person is the king. This king who comes riding humbly on a donkey. And the crowds say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Jesus is coming as your prince to, first of all, not just rescue you as much as conquer you. Yeah, he's coming to rescue you, but first of all, he's coming to conquer you. Why? Because you think you need to be God. (laughs) You think, I I can control my world. I can run my life. I know what's best for me. And we, we run our lives like that. We say to ourselves, I know what's good for me. If I can get this job, I know that's best for me. If I could have this relationship, I know that's good for me. If I could, could have this situation go this way, I know that's best. That's what we do, right? On our own, without God, without saying, you know what, there's a God who knows better than me. <laughs> there's something that he wants, us, he wants to hear from us, in a sense, as, as, as our king, so that, so that he can be the king. And that's that, that just that simple phrase, I can't do this on my own. I can't do this on my own. 
What's, what's funny here is the Pharisees, right, they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered and said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. <laughs> I can't do this on my own. I can't conquer death. I can't avoid pain. I can't make everyone get along. I can't keep the peace. I can't make justice happen. I can't get myself to do what I think is right, even ultimately. I can't make myself better. I can't do these things. And yet Jesus says, if this doesn't happen this way, even the rocks will cry out. It's earlier, right? He's the one who said, hey, disciples, you know, you know, you're going to this village and I need a colt that's sitting on a, you know, over here. Get that colt, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, you know, why do you need this? All you have to say is, the Lord needs it and, and you can take it. You know? he, he, he's in control. He's God. He can see the future. He knows the future from the past and he knows how, to, how it all fits together. And he, he's the one who's saying, I can make it happen. You think these disciples are making the wrong statements? If, if they don't make it, the rocks will. This is the God of the universe. This is the God that we look at and he's, he's saying, hey, I, I will save you. You know why he can say that? Because when he gets to the cross, right? He's sitting on that cross and we're going to talk about on Friday how he's our substitute in this. And then Sunday, next Sunday at Easter, we're going to look at how he's the victor in this. But you remember, right? I mean, if you've heard the story before, he's, he's on the cross hanging there, and the Pharisees again show up, and they're like, <laughs> the Sadducees as well, they're all mocking him. And they're like, if you're the king of Israel, save yourself. If you're the king of Israel, save yourself. And you know what he didn't do? He didn't save himself. He didn't come down from the cross. Our king is our king because he didn't save himself. He let God save him in God's way. Even Jesus said, I can't do this on my own. I need my father. And that's why he is our king not just he is our God that we have to worship, but he is our king, the one who conquers us and rescues us. Here is this God, and he's, he's come, and he's making this claim. And the question is, is do you believe it or not? Do you believe it? That you can't do it on your own, that you can't make life happen the way you want it to happen, that even with all your skills and abilities and talents and charisma and plans, that you can't save yourself. Your king didn't save himself either, but God saved him, giving him a name above every name. Zechariah, right, is the prophecy about this passage. Notice Zechariah. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a, on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. Now this is written at least 400 years before Christ rode on that donkey. 
Notice what it goes on to say. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Here is that I'm going to, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to deliver you. And it's the same, notice the last verse here. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today, I declare that it will restore to you double. That last phrase is an amazing phrase. Today, I declare that it will restore to you double. With all the failures that you've had in your life, maybe the times you've gotten angry, the times you've said destructive things, the times you've done destructive things to yourself or others. Can you restore double to yourself? Can you say, I'm going to take that away and I'm going to give to myself not just the good I should have done, but, but double <laughs> of what should have happened there. Can you, can you do that? God says he can. If you're older and you're looking back at your life and you're like, well, I wasted so many years and I, there's so many things I wish I could I regret and I wish I could go back and change. He'll restore to you double. If you're young and you're thinking, I, I don't know what my life's going to be and I don't know how it's going to go and I, I already made some mistakes and I, I don't know how I can control everything to make it happen. Someone who promises to restore to you double? I think I would want that. And that's why the phrase here is, is so powerful. A prisoner of hope. We don't, we don't often put those terms together, do we? we? We think of hope as being free. Like if I have hope, I am free. <laughs> like I can go and I can move and I can... And what he's saying here in a sense is, no, you're a prisoner of hope. He says return back to your, in a sense, to your homes, to your strongholds, but return as prisoners of hope. Why? Because it hasn't happened yet, but it's promised to happen. Are you a prisoner of hope? You go to your job and you're like, well, another day at the job. You can be either a prisoner of your job or you can be a prisoner of hope at your job, right? You can go to your home and you can think, well, another time with my family. I don't get along with them great. I don't, they don't know how this is going to go. I don't know. I don't like certain members of my family. I don't know where you're at. You can be either a prisoner in your family or a prisoner of hope in your family. You can look at your life and you can say to yourself, man, I, my life is not what I wished it would be and I don't know how it's going to go. Again, you can either be a prisoner in your life or you can be a prisoner of hope in your life. There's a total difference there, isn't there? And God is saying here to us, he's saying, be prisoners of hope. Hope in what I can do. Hope in what I can restore. Hope in what I can accomplish. Because you can't do it on your own, but I can. 
You can't conquer death. I can. You can't conquer sin. I can. You can't change yourself. You can't make yourself into what you want yourself to be. You can't make your life into what you want it to be. But I can make it better than what you can ask or imagine. And Jesus is coming. A king who can predict the future. And his disciples knew it. A king who can make rocks cry out. And none of us can do that. And he's coming as to be king of your life. To make you a prisoner of hope. So that in your difficulties you can pray in hope. In your sorrows you can cry in hope. In your laughter you can rejoice in hope. In your job you can work in hope. In your family you can love in hope. This is the God, and this, this is what's happening right here. In, in, it's, it's fulfillment of Zechariah 9. The king is coming down the road on the donkey, and he's saying to Jerusalem, come to me, be prisoners of hope. And they didn't get it. Fortunately, in, in that sense, they didn't get it because Christ went to the cross and became the king for all of us, not just the king of the Jews. So we all be prisoners of hope. I guess my question for you is, are you a prisoner of hope? Do you see your life and know yourself? Maybe you're the kind that's like, yeah, I just want everybody to keep the rules. If everybody kept the rules, I'd be good. But obviously nobody keeps the rules. What are you going to do? kind of a prisoner of your expectations or you can be a prisoner of hope in God maybe you're someone who's like I just want my life to be comfortable <laughs> you know what people don't always do what you say so that your life can be comfortable just being honest <laughs> if you haven't figured that out yet you can either be a prisoner of trying to control everyone else or you can be a prisoner of hope what are you going to be some of you are just dancing day to day. I don't know what today brings. I'm just going to dance with the flow, keep going, keep moving. Hopefully it'll all work out. That gets tiring after a while. You can either be a prisoner of just trying to go day to day or you can be a prisoner of hope. Because the God of love and fury, in Jesus Christ, love and fury kiss. They come together. Jesus loved us enough to die for us on the cross. And he's angry enough with sin to die on the cross for that sin. And that's what makes us prisoners of hope. Because we can look at our lives, we can look at our failures, and know that those can, someone's not going to just be like, oh, no big deal. You know, just kind of make something of your life now. You know what? I'm almost 50. If I didn't have hope... I've made a lot of mistakes. You know what I mean? Things that, that are hard to go back and change. If I didn't have hope, I don't want someone that's just like, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I want someone who's mad and says, that's not right. I'm going to make it better. And I want someone who loves me enough to be like, I'm not just going to make that better. I'm going to make you better. 
That's the God who's coming, riding on a donkey. And that's why Alexa Menos, back in the, whoever he was, is like, I'm going to serve that God. I'm not going to serve the Roman God. It's all about power and destruction. I'm going to serve the God who loves me enough to get angry with me, but also loves me enough to deliver me. Which God do you serve? And who are you? Are you a prisoner of hope? I pray that you are. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder. In, in Scripture, right, you, you, you had Zechariah written, prophesying what was going to happen. And then when it happened, it helps us to see the entire picture that you don't give up on Israel, you don't give up on us. Even when we reject you and we do, do things that hurt you and, and blaspheme your name and say, hey, I, I, who needs God? You still love us. And you don't give up on us. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would be prisoners of hope. That we would see who you are. And in the midst of our lives, in the midst of work and family and fun and play, that we would not look to those things alone to make us us. But that we would look to you and your promises and ultimately to Jesus, our King, who's conquered us and made us realize we can't do it on our own but we can do it because he is with us and he'll never leave us or forsake us. He is our king. We thank you for that. In your son's name we pray, amen.